the train was going 106 miles an hour on a curve designed for a maximum of 50. My stomach was up above my heart, my colon was under my armpit, my spleen was destroyed, bleeding uncontrollably, my bladder was ruptured, all of my intestines were perforated, lacerated, all of my abdominal organs were up in my chest, my lung was collapsed, my heart was actually pushed over in the wrong place. All of the ribs on my left side were crushed, not, not just broken, but crushed in multiple pieces and multiple places. My pelvis was broken in half. The whole left side of my pelvis was shattered. I broke four vertebrae in my back. I was a Jane Doe. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of The Depression Files. If you enjoy the podcast and have found value in the show, please check out my Patreon page. There, you'll be able to support me financially with as little as a dollar a month. Your support will help me offset the cost of the podcast hosting site, maintain and update my equipment, and support the amount of time that it takes in order to produce the show. You can find my Patreon page at patreon.com slash thedepressionfiles. That's Patreon. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash The Depression Files. In addition, it would help me out greatly if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now, to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, an interview format show in which you'll hear stories of men who have struggled with depression and or other mental illnesses. In addition, you'll hear deep dive conversations with guest experts on various topics related to mental health. Topics such as depression and other mental illnesses, medication, suicide awareness and prevention, our current mental health system, and of course, the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that both sharing stories and educating people are ways to chip away at the stigma. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I wanna thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. I'm Al Levin, your host. I'm really excited today on the line. We have Gerilyn Ritter. Gerilyn is an executive vice president at Organon & Company. She is a trauma survivor and she is an author. Gerilyn, welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, Gerilyn, you have just an incredible story and my understanding is this, uh, and we'll jump right into it. I believe this was about seven years ago, and you were on a train. And I remember this still to this day, the, uh, you know, it hitting national news. It was probably world news, a major derailment in Pennsylvania. And uh, why don't we just start with that? I think the train was going from D.C. to New York. And I'm wondering if you were on a business trip or what you're, where you were going. Sure, sure. You know, the, the thing that always just hits me was the sheer ordinariness of the day. It, it was just such a normal day for me. Um, I had a role uh, at ARC, a very large pharmaceutical company. My responsibility was... Uh, public policy, healthcare policy, and our charitable giving, uh, our, our corporate responsibility. And I was in Washington 
you know, several times a month. I'd gotten up that morning, taken the train to DC. I had a, a board meeting for a nonprofit that I was on. And I'd been asked to do a talk on women's leadership that evening in Philadelphia. So I got back on the train, headed north to my home in New Jersey, got off in Philadelphia, and, and I was on this panel. And I got back on the train, um, again, just so ordinary. I sat down, it was about nine o'clock at night. It had been a long day, obviously. And I texted my husband, leaving Philly home soon. And we had this really regular back and forth. He was telling me about my youngest son. I, I have three sons. My youngest was eight at the time and he'd gotten a hit at his little league baseball game. And, and I said, great, can't wait to see you soon. And then I stood up. I, I had about 30 minutes to kill and I was getting something out of my briefcase that was on the luggage rack above my head. And I stood up and, and the train was rocking and, and I grabbed the luggage rack with both hands and I just didn't understand what was going on. I, I'd taken this train so often and usually it goes very slowly out of Philadelphia. And all of a sudden I felt like we were tipping over and I was standing in the aisle and I had my hands braced on the luggage rack and I, I just remember it going through my head that we can't be tipping, that that was impossible, that trains don't tip over. And the very last thing I remember was screaming. You know, I, I remember a flash of realization that we actually were tipping over and I screamed. And my next actual memory is several days later, waking up on a ventilator in intensive care. Wow. Wow. And how long would that trip have normally taken you? Oh, goodness. From Philadelphia, I usually get off at the next stop. You know, it's about half an hour. And then I had about a 45-minute drive home. Right. Um, and then the train derailed um, just outside of Philadelphia. We hadn't been on the train very long at all. Yeah, I read that, um, the, that the accident was at 9.23. Exactly. And, you know, it came out. Very quickly, I learned later um, that the train was going 106 miles an hour on a curve designed for a maximum of 50. Wow. And in fact, it's, it's the sharpest curve in the entire Northeast Corridor. And the National Transportation Safety Board concluded as a result of its accident inve investigation that the engineer had gotten disoriented. Uh, they called it a loss of situational awareness, and he hadn't been drinking, he wasn't on his cell phone, no drugs involved. He purely seemed to have gotten distracted and sped up heading into this curve rather than slowing down. Wow. I said, we derailed at 106. And this was, this was May 12th, 2015, just over seven years ago, and... So you felt the train shaking before you felt like it was leaning over? I, I did. I, I stood up and I kind of stumbled and I was trying to reach into my bag in the overhead rack. But we were, it, you know, we were going so fast and it was it was shaking that I, I couldn't let go of the luggage rack. I was kind of annoyed because I, I just wanted to grab my iPad out of my briefcase. But 
I, you know, I, I had to hold on to keep my footing. And and it happened so quickly. It, it you know, I, I you know, if it had gone on for longer, I suppose I would have sat back down. But you know, you, you kind of realize you can't stand up and I'm I'm holding on and, and then we start to feel like you're tipping. And like I said, I just screamed. Yeah. I just screamed. And unfortunately, eight people were killed in the accident. Um, many of them sitting right around me in the car that I was riding in. It was the first car. And if you Google photos of the accident, there were eight cars on the train. Seven of them look like train cars that are tipped over some of them. The first car looks like a debris field. It doesn't even look like a train car. It was twisted, it was ripped open, and tragically, quite a few people that lost their lives were sitting in that car. Is that the car you were in, that first one? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Wow. Yeah, and I read over 200 were injured and 11 critical, in addition to, like you said, eight people died. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. And and I know I read also that that train engineer was a 32-year-old man. And, uh, wow, like you said, I mean, it clearly, they boiled it down to engineer error, human error. Um, just, right. Um, it's hard to grapple with. You know, yeah. I, I, I'm a really rational person, and I know everybody makes mistakes and accidents happen. Um, but I, I am really haunted by the fact that, that eight people lost their lives. Yeah result of that inattention right so you you hold you feel strongly that the blame you hold in this is solely on that driver no i don't um we're all human and everybody does make mistakes i was more frustrated that there is a safety system that exists you know we we have the technology for self-driving cars there's been technology in existence for a very long time And it had been recommended, even required by federal law at that time. And it automatically slows a speeding train. So it can sense, you know, how fast the train is going and where it is on the track. And Amtrak had deployed it almost everywhere else on that route, except for this curve. The sharpest curve on the track. Exactly. And I don't know the rationale for that. Maybe they thought, I'm speculating, of course, that that nobody would fly out of Philadelphia at that speed so quickly. Right. Um, but I think it's it's a bit of a lack of a, of a safety focus and culture yeah. there. Yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, so. I hear you saying, yes, a distracted driver, that's a big thing. And there could have also been systems in place that were already being utilized elsewhere that would have certainly prevented such a tragedy. And, you know, when they say he lost situational awareness, and maybe this is neither here nor there, but I'm curious if, I mean, was this a distracted driver who was on his cell phone, you know, surfing the web, or was he distracted because there's so much, so many mechanical pieces going on around him that he just lost track of stuff? You know, I don't know, according to public reports and and the official uh, investigation, um, he had an excellent record and he was not on a cell phone. Uh, And there were radio reports of maybe somebody throwing rocks at a nearby train. I mean, who's really to say why he was distracted? Um, 
but the conclusion was, um, you know, essentially distracted yeah. driving. Yeah. So then you lost all memory after that, which is pretty common, it sounds like, kind of a, a self mechanism of our bodies to not remember some of some incredibly tragic situations. And I think you said three days later you wake up in the ICU. Yeah, my, my first real memory, I remember having a lot of dreams and, and some of them were from childhood. Some of them were from college. There was a recurring dream of being in the hospital and having doctors hover over me, which I, I now recognize must have been kind of brief flashes of consciousness. Right. What happened in reality, I know from medical records that I was found very quickly. Uh, I must have been one of the first folks that the first responders found. I was a Jane Doe. You know, if you think about it, a man thrown out of a train probably has a wallet in his pocket. Right. But, you know, a woman probably has her purse stashed under the seat. And uh, so I was a Jane Doe. Nobody knew who I was. I had been texting with my husband. He was on his phone when he got a pop-up, you know, breaking news alert. that said Amtrak 188 derailed outside of Philadelphia. You know, he didn't know my train number. There's a lot of trains on that route. But he called me right away. And it went to voicemail and, and he called me again and again. He then thought to use that feature on the iPhone that's find my iPhone. And so he did a search for my phone and the icon of my phone popped up on the screen over an image of a map. And it showed my phone exactly in that location about 20 feet off the track. Oh my goodness. He figured I must there and I was brought to the nearest hospital and it, it haunts me I don't know who found me I've never been able to thank them but they most definitely saved my life they brought me to the a, a small local hospital that tried to stabilize me got me on a ventilator so I could breathe put a chest tube in me you know immobilized me because I had so many dangerous you know broken bones in my back and my hips and they put me on a life flight a helicopter to a level one trauma center at a much larger hospital in Philadelphia Penn Presbyterian I landed and they got me into surgery I was in surgery just a little after midnight and absolutely that saved my life my husband that night looked all over Philadelphia with a close friend of ours he drove to the accident scene. He drove to, you know, schools where he was told families were being assisted. He went to every hospital he could find on the internet, you know, asking for me, showing people my picture, asking about unidentified patients. And my sons, I have three sons. My oldest was 15. My middle son uh, was 12. And my youngest, thankfully, was asleep. He was eight. But my two older sons called hospitals all night as well. I'm looking for my mom. She was on the train. Do you have anybody called Gerilyn Ritter? And and they were texting my husband, and I've seen the transcripts of the text. And it just breaks my heart. You know, we're supposed to worry about our kids, not them worry about us. <laughs> and, you know, the text from my oldest son to my husband, Dad, have you found mom? Dad, people are dead. Dad, somebody else, have you found her yet? 
And by about four in the morning, my husband has described just sinking to his knees in a hallway and realizing that, you know, seven hours had passed since the accident. I had either passed or I was too hurt to find some way to contact him. You know, even if I'd lost my cell phone, I would have asked somebody else or had a doctor call and he remembers just praying, please let her be hurt. And, you know, as morning broke around 6 a.m., he finally got a report that there was one more unidentified patient. You know, as the hours passed, more and more hospitals had identified all their patients. And they said, you know, he went to probably seven, eight hospitals that night. And they said, you know, they didn't have anybody by my name. He could check back later. And eventually they'd identified everyone. Then he got a report of one unidentified woman in surgery at this particular hospital. And he drove there. The chaplain met him. He convinced the chaplain that that it was likely enough to be me. There were several people still missing, unfortunately, at this point. But they let him in. I, I had just gotten out of surgery. And he didn't recognize me. I was on a ventilator. Um, I'd had tons of surgery. My whole body from I was in a big cervical collar. My the only thing that really showed was my eyebrows <laughs> above the ventilator and, and my forehead and hair were all bruised and bloody and they had left my abdomen open because they knew they'd have to go right back in the next day and do more surgery. And he said to his friend, I don't think it's her. And the friend said, no, 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 I, I think it could be. And he asked the nurses if the patient had any personal effects. And it wasn't until he saw this bag of jewelry that had been cut off me that he recognized a bracelet and a watch he had given me. Wow. And it was me. Oh my goodness. He's identifying you by what you were wearing and couldn't even identify you seeing you. Right. You know, my, my, my family, I, I'm the oldest of four. I, I have three siblings. Um, they're all physicians and their spouses are physicians. And, you know, pretty quickly he got to work calling them and, and letting everyone know what had happened. And the, the trauma surgeon had said to him, do you want to know about her injuries? And he said, no, 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 talk to, talk, talk to her brothers. They're all doctors. And the trauma surgeon got on the phone with one of my brothers. And she said, let's just start from the top and work our way down. And my brother asked her after a while, how is she still alive? And I only found this out recently. The trauma surgeon told him I would not survive and they needed to come quickly. And one of my brothers packed a dark suit for my funeral. My parents flew in. Um, my, my family scattered all over. I live on the East Coast, but I've got a brother in Washington State and a brother and sister in Texas. My parents live in Colorado. And um, they all flew in immediately that next day. Wow. So that was my first memory waking up. Um, you know, I was found on a Wednesday. The accident happened on a Tuesday night. I was found Wednesday and identified Wednesday morning. My first real memory is waking up on Friday and seeing one of my brothers lean over me. And because I was on a ventilator, I couldn't speak and I was immobilized, so I couldn't move. My neck was in a big brace. All I could do was look at the ceiling. <laughs> and my brother said, sis, don't try to speak. You've been in an accident. Blink once if you understand. 
and I blinked, but you know, I most certainly didn't understand. And, you know, gradually, like my siblings and my parents and my husband kind of all came into my peripheral vision. And it was just so confusing. Like I said, we, we live all over the country and, you know, it usually takes like two years of planning to get us in the same room at the same time. Right. <laughs> and I, you know, it, it, it was kind of my first clue what bad shape I was in. Uh huh. Wow. What time was it when your husband finally found you? Uh, about six thirty in the morning. Okay. Don't know the exact time, but it was it was early morning, and one of the first things he did, um, you know, probably around seven, because my son, my oldest son, was kind of on automatic pilot and and was hoping everything was normal, and and even though he'd stayed up most of the night calling hospitals and texting my husband. He was he was headed to the bus stop for school. And my son describes getting the the text from my husband. We found her. She's alive. And he said he just screamed and fell down in the grass. Wow. Well and, and I know you know you've mentioned it here clearly and I had seen some writing you had done or maybe another interview where you clearly understand the trauma they went through, even though you went through an incredible amount of trauma, you know how it, it seems like you have a really good sense about the fact that my family members too struggled with the trauma of my accident. Absolutely. You know, and I, I have to say, I certainly appreciate it more now than I did at the time, right. you know, certainly in the immediate aftermath of the accident, but, but even in the year or two after the accident, Trauma can be so alienating, um, so isolating. They, they, they call it, you know, you're, you're, you're disassociated. And, and as much as people you love are trying to do everything they can to support you, you just feel like nobody else can understand. And, and they can't. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and I couldn't understand the struggles of my husband, you know, yeah. just as I was thrown from flying all over the world. My my job was equally likely to take me to Washington or to Brussels or to Paris as it was to Ethiopia or Botswana or slums in New Delhi, where we had, you know, just fantastic charitable programs that I was responsible for. And and I went from that to complete dependence, loss of control, overwhelming pain. You know, but my husband was also thrown instantly into the role of full-time caregiver. Right. No, and and my my sons were not even allowed to see me for over two weeks. Wow. It was, they were afraid that it would be too traumatizing for my sons to see me that way. And when they weren't sure I was going to make it, they didn't want that to be my son's last image of me. Right. On a ventilator. So it wasn't until two full weeks after the accident. And I had gotten off the ventilator and and everyone was sure I was going to make it. They weren't sure what shape I'd be in, but I was going to live that um, my sons were allowed to come in. And that feeling was so wonderful to see their faces, to tell them how proud I was of them for, you know, coming through this and, and looking for me and helping to find me and caring and carrying on. Um, It was a very, sad but but special moment oh, when I'm I got sure. to see that. I'm sure 
What about, so you mentioned waking up and you see your brother and he starts telling you, you know, don't talk, you were in an accident. How long do you think it was before you could really piece it all together and understand what really happened? Oh, quite a while. And and I don't think I, well, I know I didn't appreciate the severity of my injuries for a very long time. You know, I knew intellectually what had happened, but it was months till I really appreciated how life-changing this was. You know, once, I don't know, I'd had six or so surgeries and, and the immediate danger and my organs were repaired and, and I had put all this hardware in to, to fix my pelvis and my ribs. And, you know, I, I was still in this mindset that I'll be back to work at the end of the summer. You know, <laughs> oh, broken bones heal in six weeks or so, you know, and, and I think nobody wanted to disappoint me or discourage me, but I went back to work um, a little under two and a half years later. Wow. Are, are you even able to describe and, and know and remember like the list of injuries? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the way I describe it was exactly how I remember it being described to me. In that first interaction with my brother, I, I think I blinked once and, and passed out again. I, you know, it, but over the next several days that I, as I regained and had longer periods of consciousness, I, I couldn't speak for over a week. I was on a ventilator for about eight or nine days, and, and, but I could blink yes or no. And eventually they brought me uh, a, a letter board and, and then a whiteboard and, and the one arm that wasn't in a cast although we later realized it was broken too, um, I, I would, you know, with my left hand kind of point to letters and, and try to ask questions or scribble a little note on the whiteboard with my left hand. But the way it was described to me is kind of two categories of injuries. My, all of my, I hit with such force that all of my abdominal organs were thrown up into my chest. And, and, you know, if you know a bit about anatomy, that the diaphragm is this really thick, leathery kind of muscle that separates your, your chest and your lungs from your abdominal organs. And that had ripped open. My stomach was up above my heart. My colon was under my armpit. My spleen was destroyed, bleeding uncontrollably. My bladder was ruptured. All of my intestines were perforated, lacerated. So... I mean, literally, my 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 all of my abdominal organs were up in my chest. My lung was collapsed. My heart was actually pushed over in the wrong place. And then, in terms of orthopedic injuries, I had what they call a flail chest. All of the ribs on my left side were crushed, not not just broken, but crushed in multiple pieces and multiple places. so it it, it makes it impossible, even if my lungs weren't collapsed to to breathe on your own. They ended up piecing them back together and plating them with metal plates and little screws, you know, kind of like a little boy's or, or little kid's erector set <laughs> and, and, you know, screwing little bits of, of rib bone back to make ribs for me. Um, and I, I had those plates on my chest for about a year and a half. And my pelvis was actually perhaps the most immediately life-threatening injury. I had what they call an open pelvic ring fracture my pelvis was broken in half, like the right side was not connected to the left side. And then something had penetrated the left hip. And so the whole left side of my pelvis was shattered. 
and the wound was really open and dirty. Um, and obviously there's a lot of blood vessels in that area. So I just lost tons and tons of blood. I broke four vertebrae in my back, you know, one in my neck, three in my lower back. By the grace of God, I, I, I broke them in such a way that they didn't impinge on the spinal cord. And so they immobilized my neck for a long time, but I was not paralyzed. Wow. And the other miracle is that I, I didn't suffer a major, I, I was badly concussed, but I didn't suffer a major brain injury. They did all sorts of tests and I, I didn't have the uncontrollable brain swelling you would expect. My orthopedic surgeon later told me, he said, he's a very straight-laced guy. I, I, I owe my life to him and the other trauma surgeons. He said, I have no medical explanation how your body absorbed that much force to do what it did to your pelvis and your chest, and you don't have a, you know, devastating brain injury. He said, I, I don't know how that happens. Wow. So, you know, in the beginning, yes, there was overwhelming pain that I can't even describe, but we were just so grateful. It, it was like a mantra. I did survive. I wasn't paralyzed. And even though I was very foggy, you know, the doctors kept assuring my family that I, I didn't, you know, I was in there, right. <laughs> that I didn't have a major brain injury. And like I said, that, that kind of gratitude really held us together. Yeah, that is, that is just completely unbelievable. No head injury and you are not paralyzed at all. Wow. A friend of mine at work at my previous job once said to me, he said, yeah, that was the report he got was no major brain injury. You're not paralyzed, but pretty much everything else was broken. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. Oh my goodness. Did you, I mean, was there, was it like your head was hit? Was there bruising on the head or did you somehow oh, avoid yeah. even oh, yeah. contacting? It was, it was most certainly bruised yeah. and bleeding and, and okay. things, but wow, you know, my, my brain seems to have come through. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> At least most days I think it did. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. That is just amazing. And again, so this is seven years ago and yeah, your body, I mean, was a nightmare it sounds like so how how do you even begin to recover from that and i mean obviously the life-saving critical ones they address first i'm sure yeah. um you know you talk about um like your colon under your armpit and your stomach and intestines all and your heart out of position so are they, they must be addressing all of these and that's why you had multiple surgeries almost immediately? Absolutely. You know, my, my first one, they, they, they took out my spleen. I don't have a spleen anymore. That was bleeding uncontrollably. They put my organs back in the right position. They, they cut out a lot of the intestine that was damaged to save. They repaired my bladder that had been ruptured. You know, they, they closed up my diaphragm and, and then, you know, I've, I've read the records of the surgery, the, the the gastro surgeons and the trauma surgeons moved out and the orthopedic surgeons moved in and they they put two big screws through my lower back to, to fix, you know, if you think of your pelvis, it's, it's kind of like a ring, mm -hmm. maybe think of a lifesaver. You know, if you break a lifesaver, you're almost certainly breaking it in two places, right? right, right. <laughs> the top and the bottom. 
and and that's pretty much what happened to my pelvis. So they took put I, I still have them two two big nine centimeter screws through my lower back to stabilize my low back and and make sure the pelvis was <laughs> well attached to my spine. Um, then they put a fixation device that, that screwed into my hips and actually protruded out of my body, <laughs> kind of like a uh, a towel rack. I, I joke that I had my own personal towel rack, you know, across my lap, maybe like, or maybe a seatbelt. You know, there was this bar across the front of my hips holding the sides of my pelvis together. Wow. You know, and then a couple days later, they they had to go back into my abdomen and they, they had just left my intestines disconnected. Obviously, I had a feeding tube and all sorts of chest tubes and that sort of thing. And, you know, there was just too much damage to repair all at once. So, you know, they went back in and, and attached the, some sections of my intestine. They went back in and 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 fixed my ribs with the metal plates. Um, I developed really terrible, unstable blood clots down both legs. So they they put a filter in my vena cava to to catch any blood clots before they went to my or my brain. Um, you know, it was it was kind of one thing after another for right. for several weeks there. Hardware in, hardware out. A new issue would pop up, but you know, there really, there was progress, you know, after a, a, over a little over a week, I, they removed the, they decided my lungs were strong enough that they, the ventilator, you know, if you're on a ventilator too long, the real risk of, of infection and other conditions, they were all were already worried. I, I came in so buried in track dust and, and dirt. My, my mom and my sister describe in those early days when I was still unconscious, just sitting at the head of my bed and, and trying to pick, you know, rocks and gravel out of my and out of my hair and wipe off my forehead. And my mom describes a, a, a nurse coming in and, and he said to her, can she see? And my mom said, yeah, I, I, I think so. And he said, oh my gosh, his job apparently during that first marathon surgery was to pick gravel out of my eyes while the surgeons did their work. And he said, you know, I just thought her eyes are going to be so scarred. She's going to be blinded. And, and my mom thought, you know, oh, my goodness, we hadn't even thought to worry about that. And, and she just took his hand and thanked him and said, you know, she can see me. So it, it was overwhelming. It was a lot to take in. Um, when my brother, who talked to the trauma surgeon, flew in and came into the room, he told my husband, there'd been a mistake. This wasn't me. I I told you my husband didn't recognize me. My brother came in. He said, I don't think that's her. My my husband assured him, no, no. I identified her jewelry. It's definitely her. Um, You know, but like I said, I I got off the ventilator. I I regained consciousness. And after a couple weeks, they took the feeding tube out. And and I started to eat a little bit on my own. And started letting me sit up. <laughs> I was still in a giant neck brace for a long time, but at least I could see something other than the ceiling. <laughs> well, all, all of those steps must have been just like huge, huge wins for your family too, right? Like the day they pulled out the ventilator, you know, the first time you sat up, um, all of the surgeries where you come out, you know, surviving yeah. more surgeries. And they must have been, you know, you mentioned infection from the possible infection from uh you know, the breathing tube, but they must, I mean, all the hardware in your body and everything, they must have been really worried about infections the entire time you were in. You know, initially that was one of the threats because I had 
such large open, particularly left side, that and it, and it was covered in dirt, covered in dirt, covered in dust. That they were quite. I mean, it's it's. I, I'm so grateful that I didn't get a mission. Um, and uh, you know, it it so so each each one of those little steps when they when they realized I could move my limbs then. When I started, even when I was on the ventilator and I could start communicating by pointing at letters or, or scribbling something on a little whiteboard, you know, it was maddening because I like to express myself. And, right. you know, that slowness of pecking out letters was so frustrating. Yeah. And, you know, my, my family would try to finish the sentence for me. Oh, you itch, you're hot. And I would be like, stop, no, let me finish. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> my, my mom says, you know what? You were so bossy, even without being able to talk. We knew you were in there. <laughs> that is funny. If anybody doubted it was you, once the bossiness you, started, you were, they knew. Somehow you were you. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, one arm was in a cast and the only thing I could move was that was, was my arms and I would bang on the side of my bed when I wanted something. I was, you know, I couldn't control my body temperature. So I was constantly hot, cold, something itched. I couldn't move, right. you know, and or I was hurting and I needed pain meds, whatever. And, and, you know, my mom would just try coming to my bed, bang, bang. Then they would sit down, bang, bang. <laughs> <laughs> you wow. know, you have to laugh. It was all, it was, it was all I could do. <laughs> yeah. So how, in the end, how long were you in the hospital? Um, I was in intensive care for, for, for a few weeks. Um, and then pretty quickly after I got out of intensive care, you know, about a week or so later, they sent me to inpatient rehabilitation at, to a separate hospital um, and I was there for a couple of weeks and you know got home sooner than than really anybody had expected me to but you know very much in a wheelchair on massive doses of fentanyl and oxycontin and oxycodone and lyrica which is a non-narcotic you know, and, and uh, literally 13 other medications. I had 16 prescriptions. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, for somebody that, that works in the pharmaceutical industry, I thought I knew how to manage medications and that, you know, <laughs> compliance with, with the routine was, was something that other people, you know, had trouble with or, or, or maybe older people with, with memory issues. But, oh, it was, it was, those those first few days and weeks and months at home um, were extremely tough. You know, that's when the kind of gratitude for surviving, I won't say wore off, but, you know, you can only be grateful for pain for so long. Right. <laughs> and the reality of how hurt I was, I couldn't sit up by myself. I couldn't get out of bed by myself. I certainly couldn't, couldn't transfer to my wheelchair. I couldn't go to the bathroom by myself. I, I couldn't even turn over to pick up the pill bottle beside my bed by myself. Right. So I, I needed pills every four hours. I would, I would have to hit my husband with my cast, and he would get up, walk around the bed, open the pill bottle. You know, I, I, I was in kind of a hospital-style bed. Sit me up, help me take the pill. Heaven forbid I had to go to the restroom, and you know, we just did that every few hours. And you know, that's that's really when the depression started to set in yeah. you know I was calling my boss telling him I'd be back at work by the end of the summer six weeks and everybody but me was crazy but I think nobody wanted to discourage me right and reality was though that 
you know, because I had these really unrealistic expectations around recovery, I, I kind of set myself up for failure. You know, mm -hmm. I, I thought, well, I'm just not trying hard enough. Like I should be better by now. I, why, why can't I do this yet? I was so irritable and I just incredible mood swings and I would cry at a moment's notice. You know, and I now realize those are all classic signs of depression and PTSD. Right. But I didn't realize it at the time, you know, and unless you've experienced trauma, I, I, I didn't, it took me quite a while and professional help to realize that these were entirely normal reactions. Right. Massive. You know, it's interesting, like you said, you can only take, you know, you can only appreciate so much pain and then finally things set in and, and you're at home and you're realizing there is so much pain. You mentioned setting yourself up almost by having this completely unrealistic expectation of, oh, give me six weeks and I'll be fine. And, right. and that's the goal you think you should be making. So then you're hard on yourself when you see that time ticking closer. And yeah. I wonder, too, if you're just starting to have feelings, too, of like, am I going to fully recover? Am I ever going to be pain free again? And oh, absolutely. That uncertainty haunted me for a very long time. And, you know, to some extent, it still does. I'm I'm much more accepting and, and living with a certain amount of medical uncertainty now. I will always be immunocompromised. I don't have a spleen. I just had another surgery barely four weeks ago. Um, you know, I, I will never have a normal abdomen. <laughs> right. And I joke that sometimes I think I'm like an old car. You got to go in for periodic maintenance. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so I, I have had lots of unexpected issues crop up. But the, the thing is, I had so many, they call it polytrauma, when so many of my my systems my digestive system, my, you know, respiratory system, my vascular system, certainly my orthopedics, you know, when, when you have such a constellation of injuries, nobody can tell you, you know, there wasn't a single doctor who could tell me the, my overall prognosis, when would I feel okay again? You know, they could tell me about their body part and when that might heal, right, right. but you know, I even, when I went for one of my follow-up appointments, I had like six appointments back to back because I needed to see the vascular surgeon, the orthopedist, the this, the that, the trauma surgeon, you know, and at the end of the day, the, the trauma surgeon was my last appointment. And she sat down and she looked at me. She said, so how are you doing? And I started to say, well, it's still hard to do this, my neck, my this. And she said, no, 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 no. How are you doing? Oh, wow, that's awesome. And I looked at her. And I just started crying. I realized I didn't know. Like I, I had started thinking of myself as a collection of broken body parts. Right, right. <laughs> and, and, and she said, as I looked at her and, and just cried, she said, you know, I recommend that all my trauma patients get counseling for PTSD. That's awesome. And it kind of snapped me. I was like, I, I kind of started arguing with her. Like, I'm not a combat veteran. I, I'm not a victim of, of domestic violence. Nobody tried to hurt me. I, I pride myself on being really rational. And I, I just said, I was telling her how that didn't apply to me. And, and, you know, she didn't argue with me. She just said, well, keep it in mind. And after a couple of months, as I realized that my old normal 
was probably never coming back, or at least it was going to take way longer than I ever thought. And, you know, I, I did seek counseling yeah. and, and I, I, I did realize, and, and I learned, you know, I, I started once my mind cleared enough, I started reading every book on trauma that I could. I read survivor stories. I read medical textbooks. I started researching pain, you know, and, and I did get counseling and, and I realized what I was going through had a real physiological basis. Yeah. You know, it wasn't that I just wasn't trying hard enough or that I was somehow wallowing or feeling sorry for myself. You know, there's, there's a neurochemical reason. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> your brain reacts that way and your nervous system that they describe it as, you know, it, it's stuck on high alert, right. you know, constantly bombarded by pain signals. It's, yeah. you know, it can't let down. And I had to really deliberately work on that. Yeah. I love the fact that your surgeon asked you and was like, no, no, no. How are you? Um, it, and, and recommended counseling. It, surprises me a little bit but maybe she knew you you had to do it on your own terms but it surprises me that she didn't push you a little bit because I've been in situations where people tell me about some incredible trauma they've been in and I'm just like did you ever get counseling or therapy about it and they'd look at me and and you know sometimes I would have to reiterate you know like if I was that doctor I think I would have said to you you were in a major derailment your entire yeah. body was was you know crushed and thrown all over the place like you have had serious significant trauma please you know consider therapy yeah. um yeah. because i mean i do oftentimes also say that sometimes trauma is a little dependent on the person right like yep. I, and i use kids sometimes as an example when their parents are getting divorced for some kid that might be so traumatic like my family's being ripped apart. And for others, it might be like, holy crap, it's about time because I am so tired of my parents fighting. Right? right. So what's trauma for somebody might not be trauma for another. But when you go through a major derailment and massive surgeries, like, I don't know if it's person dependent then. There are yeah. certain things that are like, that is a traumatic experience in my mind. Yeah. You know, I don't know. And I've actually talked to some surgeons since then about these unrealistic expectations I had. And, and I, I I really give Penn credit. They asked me back to give a, a continuing medical education lecture. And, and the head of trauma said to me, he said, we so rarely have ever seen a patient as seriously injured as you are who didn't have a head injury and is able to remember and give us feedback, you know, right. and, and, and share with us your experience. And, you know, I, I am, of course, I'm enormously grateful. I received world standard care and, and several procedures they did on me were new in the U.S. And they were one of the few hospitals and surgeons doing them. I was incredibly fortunate to end up where I did, you know, but but I, I did have suggestions and more realistic counseling about what was ahead would have helped me. And the answer I got back was that, as you said, I think it is person dependent. And they, I was told that sometimes if people know that it will be years till they might expect to be pain-free, they give up. Yeah. It's too overwhelming. 
And to be honest, I'm not sure I would have believed them. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I think maybe I had to get there on my own and understand it. But it was very difficult. It was extremely difficult. I'm, <laughs> I'm the kind of person that I never put any stock before. Now I do, in in meditation or breathing exercises and and these other ways to try to manage pain. You know, I I'm the person when I was pregnant with my first son, I told my husband I refused to go to Lamaze classes because I'd been breathing for 30 years and I was quite <laughs> sure I knew how to do it. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know, I just had always been, I, 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 I went to Stanford Law School and my class when we graduated gave me a joke gift of a little plaque that was most hours in the law library. <laughs> you know, just, you know, the way I'm made up was yeah. just to barrel through, work harder and, you know, I, I, this was the first time I really came up against something that I had no, well, initially I felt like I had no power over. Right, right. And very gradually that sense of agency, that sense of control, that there is something I can do, yeah. you know, can work really hard at, you know, I had physical therapy five days a week for a very long time. I, after about six months, I had healed enough that I started weaning off of the narcotics, which was a whole nother journey because I had to go through all the withdrawal symptoms and shakes and nausea on top of the pain, you know, and, and the kind of suspicious glances because I, my head and my face, you know, were not visibly permanently injured. You know, I, I actually in clothes looked normal to people, you know, right. you, you would. I would show up with my husband to fill a fentanyl prescription and the pharmacist would, would look at me with this suspicion and, you know, uh, the stigma was awful. And, and I wanted to scream, I was hit by a train. Yeah, right. I was <laughs> you <know>? thinking you should like have a little whiteboard with you that you could pull out with a list of all of your injuries, like train derailment. This is what's happened. Exactly. And, wow. And, took months and months to, to wean myself safely off of all of the drugs. And, and then I would have another surgery and have to go kind of two steps forward, one step right. back type. Thing. But, but I did it. And I, I, you know, people have heard of a concept of survivor's guilt. And I, I have certainly spent a long time thinking about and grieving those, like I said, many of whom were sitting right around me that, that, that did not survive but there is also something in the literature about survivor's pride, and I take no pride in surviving the accident. I, I, that was grace. That was a gift. Yeah. But I do take pride in getting through the next couple of years because they were hard. And ultimately, I think most survivors that do, I won't say get your life back because you never go back. It's it's never the same way as it was before. But that that find a new purpose and and live a full life and and find joy, you know. There's deliberate decisions that you make along the way, mm-hmm. and it's not easy. And and mm-hmm. and I am proud. And it's part of the reason I wrote my book was to share an honest story. And I made a. I, I really appreciate my husband's support. We made a deal. I said I'm not going to write this if it's glossing over the hard parts. And, you know, the strains on our marriage and 
the terrible things we said to each other during those difficult years and and all the embarrassing things that that I went through or said or did. But ultimately, hopefully, it's a story of hope that that things you can do and it may not be on your timetable and it, it may not life may not look like what it did before, but it is possible. And you know, I believe there's power in stories. It's one of the reasons I appreciate being on your show. If one person out there, you know, you don't have to be hit by a train. You know, there, uh, auto accidents are tragically common or, or people have a disruption in their personal life or a terrible diagnosis or a child who's sick or a relationship that gets destroyed. You know, all of these, we all face something, right? Absolutely. Everybody's got something. And if somebody can take a little bit of hope or a lesson from yeah, the way I bumbled myself through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I want to get more into some of that. But first, I want to just ask, you know, you mentioned four weeks ago having another surgery. So you are still dealing with some surgeries. And are you still living with pain? And how do you manage those pieces? And what types of injuries are you still living with? You know, I um, maybe a story kind of sums it up. It was about three and a half years ago. I was back at work. Um, I went to bed perfectly fine, feeling healthy. I, I will always probably have some low back and hip pain. I mean, you just, you know, can't can't quite put that back together again with the same balance and strength and, and core strength. Um, but a lot of people live with low back pain. So, you know, I manage it with over-the-counter medicine most of the time. Uh, well, really all of the time, unless I've had surgery. But on, on this day in 2019, it was February. I went to bed completely normal for me then. And I woke up in the morning with a stomach ache. And I, I didn't understand. I thought, this is strange. And I, I called into work, said I'd be working at home that day. And long story short, by the afternoon, I was in an ambulance headed back to Philadelphia. Um, because of all the scar tissue, because of all the damage to my intestines, almost four years after the accident, somehow in my sleep, my uh, a really important part of my intestine had gotten twisted up. And that's a life-threatening situation. So I, I, they put me in surgery almost right away. I had a major resection. And, you know, on no notice, I'm out of work again for eight weeks. Wow. And back in the hospital, flat on my back completely open abdomen and, you know, go, I, I joke, I'm on my fifth belly button now. Um, wow. <laughs> so my, my newest one, um, as of August, <laughs> but, uh, you know, at, at this point, I, it, it never, I gets easier, but I know what to expect. And, you know, I, I, I do live with a body that is, um, different, you know, and, and probably more vulnerable than others, but I can walk, I can, I, I can't, I don't run, but I, I exercise, I lift weights, I do Pilates, I do very gentle yoga, I work full time, I travel, um, you know, my, my sons are fantastic, um, but anybody with three kids will tell you that's an active part of life. <laughs> right, right. So, so. You know, I, I do try to focus more on what I can do as opposed to what I can't right. because I can do the important things and I can really, I think I have a much sharper focus 
on doing things that are meaningful. And and whether it's just laughing with friends or, you know, staying really close with my sons, even though two of them are, are off in college, you know, we, we text daily and, you know, I went back to work because I really believe in what I do yeah. and I, I get fulfillment of it. And I wrote this book as a way of trying to salvage something out of those two years that, that are otherwise just a black hole in my life. Right. You know, it's, right. I, I was fortunate enough to survive and, and to get a really beautiful life back. And if there's some tiny way to pay it forward, then it's not all for nothing. Right. Right. Now, would you say counseling or therapy was really the start of your mental health recovery? It was, uh-huh. you know, and, and I, I needed to hear, I think, from a medical perspective, the, you know, I, as I said, I, I needed to understand why this was happening, why I was feeling this way, that, that, you know, it, it truly, there was a, <laughs> there was a really good reason, which you might've thought would have been obvious, but it wasn't to me. Right. <laughs> and, and I needed you know, I, I, I studied, I read, I learned. And then, and then I gradually, you know, when I was still in a lot of pain and going through withdrawal off of the, the pain medication, I, I, I hit such a terrible low point. I was just desperate. And, you know, I opened myself up to, to trying new things, you know, to, to, to hiring somebody to come to the house. And, and I was fortunate to be in a position to do that, to, to teach me alternative ways to try to get a handle on my pain or, or feel some control over this body that <laughs> I, I loved because it had saved me, but I hated because I felt so broken. Yeah. And, and that was kind of, you know, that's kind of what I've urged others to do is, yes, seek counseling. Yes, try to make sure you've got that you're optimistic, but it's grounded in realism, you know, blind optimism that this is all going to be fine, you know, in six weeks, probably not the right approach, yeah, right. you know, and, and to try new things, learn something, you know, I, I've read stories of other survivors that uh, t- decided to go back to school that, you know, started up a volunteer agency, that learned a foreign language, that decided to spend a year traveling. You know, I think you have to think outside of the box because the tools that served you before may or may not work. Exactly. (laughs) You know, are you able to describe your low time to us? You know, you said it was your lowest time when you reached out and had somebody come into the house. What were your low times like? You know, there were several and, and they, they differed sort of in, in flavor and duration. And, and one, one of the things that I really detest, it's, it's one of my pet peeves now is when they ask you to rate your pain on a scale of one to 10 and, you know, they just want a number. And I always said, what pain are you talking about? The pain when I breathe, the pain in my hip, the pain when I take the meds, the pain when I don't take the meds, the pain when I'm lying still, or the pain when I'm walking around. And the answer was always, just give me a number. Right, <laughs> and, right. and I think with mental health, it's, it's, it's kind of the same. You know, there was a really low time a few months, a month or two after I got home from the hospital, when I really realized, yes, I was home, 
I was surrounded by family. I was familiar environments, but nothing was the same. And that, that was when I first reached out for counseling. And a few months later, after I had started, I had made progress. I was walking again. Um, and I started weaning off the opioids. And that was really difficult. And it was gray and rainy and February and my pain, I felt like I was going backwards because, you know, you're taking less pain medication. I'm, you're feeling more pain. Right. <laughs> but then on top of it, I've got the nausea and the shakes and the chills and the twitchiness and I couldn't sleep. And I would just bundle up in my bathrobe, not showered, hadn't eaten and zone out and stare at our gas fireplace for hours. And I would, sometimes when I was laying in bed, I, I couldn't sleep all night, but I could sleep during the day. And, and my therapist at one point hypothesized that my body didn't feel safe going dark during the evening. And, and maybe, maybe during the day, it felt safer to me to shut down. I don't know. I, I still have terrible insomnia ever since the accident, but that's one of the lasting effects I really haven't been able to shake. But for years after the accident and after every surgery since, including a month ago, I wake up with my arms reaching toward the ceiling and it really puzzled me for a long time. And it was weird. Like I, I, I could control them. It's not like it was some reflex and I knew intellectually it was strange and my husband would say in the middle of the night when I was sleeping, he would see me moaning in my arms, reaching up for the ceiling. And I didn't figure it out till much later. I was describing to someone how I was standing and holding onto the luggage rack above my head when the train crashed. Mm -hmm. And I, I held my hands up to just kind of demonstrate standing there holding onto the luggage rack and it clicked. Right. And I realized in my sleep, somehow, that was my last moment of safety. And, I, you know, I would take a nap or I'd be weighing, laying, sitting in front of the fire like I was describing to you. And I would just reach my arms up. And, and somehow that felt like a comfortable position. And I would hold them up there till literally I couldn't hold them up anymore. I would drop my phone on the floor. I cracked several screens. My husband would sit me up in bed and, and bring me a cup of coffee and I'd fall asleep sitting straight up and raise my arms above my head and spill the coffee all over myself. Oh my <laughs> goodness. Wow. It just, you know, there's part of our body. There, there's a, there's a well-known book out there called the body keeps the score. Yeah, I love that and book. I think, yeah. Some of those traumatic memories are just, they're visceral. They're, they're just stored in your body. And I, do take the train regularly for my job. And I determined that I was not going to let this accident dictate how I lived my life. And so I, I ride the train on a regular basis. Was it difficult to get in the first time after the, the accident? First time my husband went with me and I really wanted, and I've taken trips with my sons because I don't want them to be afraid because as terrible as the accident was, we know it was anomaly, an anomaly. I mean, there, there are tragically too many train derailments, but car crashes are far more common, right? And so yeah. I, I, I pride myself on, on, on being rational about this, but there is a memory. When I'm sitting in the seat, I'm okay, 
But if I walk down the aisle and the train is rocking to go to the cafe car, it's not a flashback. I know where I am. I know what I'm doing. But you can't help those memories coming back. Yeah. You know, just can't help so it. This, I, I yes. Bump. So this is one part of trauma that I have learned about and read about, and I'm curious of your take on it. And it might have even been in The Body Keeps the Score, but the fact that you can be completely rational and say this train accident was an anomaly. I'm going to get right. right back in a train and I'm going going to be fine because I was on a train a thousand other times and right. it was perfectly fine. And rationally you can say that, but as you step on, your right. you know the the emotional part of your brain still holds yep. that and so your body may you may start getting the sweats, you may start shaking and not even really realize why. Because yep. rationally, you you are able to tell yourself, well, there's no problem, but your body is still reacting. And, and do you, did you have any of that? And do you agree with that? Oh, I totally agree with that. Yeah. You know, I was fortunate that, that my symptoms were not dramatic, you know, but I get goosebumps. And I can be absorbed in a book or working on a document or on a phone call, and I know when we're passing the site of the accident. You know, I know when we're approaching Philadelphia and I always put down what I'm doing and bow my head. And I, if, if I'm walking down the aisle, no matter where we are, I, as I described, if the train starts rocking, I breathe deeply, I remind myself that I'm okay, I give thanks that I'm okay and able to be doing this. Right. <laughs> but, I, but I have to give myself a pep talk. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. And, you know, I'm curious, too, with the therapy and such, I have read quite a bit about EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, particularly as a therapy for trauma. Wondering if you ever utilized EMDR or know about EMDR. You know, I have since heard about it at the time. I did not know of it. And um, my psychiatrist never mentioned it. So. Okay. Um, I, I don't have experience with that. Mm. I have heard that it has helped others. You know, if, if I started over, maybe that was some, would be something I looked into, but, um, I, I only even learned about the technique, uh, later on in my journey. Okay. So was there a particular type of therapy that your therapist used with you? You know, I, I saw the therapist for, for a little while, um, and it really got me on the right track mm -hmm. to my recovery and it was it was mainly traditional uh talk therapy okay um i did after a while i was prescribed not by my therapist but by my one of my physicians i was having so much nerve pain because some of the um hardware implanted on my body was pressed right up against a nerve and and unfortunately that's just where the hardware had to sit right. <laughs> but i was having on my good side just this horrible nerve pain, like an electric shock down my good leg. And it was really difficult for months. So I was prescribed uh, an SSRI actually for the nerve pain. <laughs> but my doctor said, you know, it also can help your mood. And that might be a good idea. <laughs> right, right. Okay. So, you know, I, I think I had sort of a little bit of an old fashioned stigma about about taking a drug for mood. But um, you know, I have since recognized how valuable that can be for some folks. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, wow. I, I mean, it's pretty incredible too. A lot of people who have different traumatic situations and incidents aren't even able to discuss or talk about them. And I've met some who have said, I couldn't talk about this with you until I had EMDR or, or some others with therapy like yourself. I'm curious, like when, I mean, clearly you can even chuckle about different incidents um, through your tragedy. And, and I think that's awesome and phenomenal that you're able to talk about it and to chuckle at some of the, the humor that you were able to see in it. How long did, would it, would you say it took you to, to finally get to that point? You know, it, it may sound crazy, but even in intensive care, you know, during those first couple of weeks, there were times when we laughed and it, maybe that's just how I'm made. Maybe that's my family. It, and, and I guess maybe one of the characteristics that uh, of those really the, at least the first year was incredible swings in my mood. So I could go from laughing and having very normal conversations and joking with friends and maybe even having a glass of wine, you know, and then, you know, two hours later, I'd be having a panic attack and screaming at my husband and mad at the kids. And, you know, so, um, it wasn't kind of a straight line where my mood improved it was more a series of a, a very uh, roller coaster ride that that ultimately finally smoothed out in a much better place. Yeah, yeah. You know, th- those ups and downs got uh, um, got less dramatic. <laughs> right, right. Well, <laughs> and yeah, and, and I would imagine any doctor would tell you that the the laughing is probably part of what helped you along, right? I mean, everybody oh, knows yeah. laughter is healthy. A hundred percent. And, and I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to have a family that, that could laugh with me even through that, you know, I'm on a feeding tube and people sent a bunch of cookies, you know, I'm on a ventilator and <laughs> right. feeding tube, and I've got all these cookies in the ICU, yeah. you know, and my, my dad was really happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And, uh, you know, some of the absurdities, you know, when you're on a ventilator, you can't speak. And and so I had a call button to call the nurse, you know, if, if my family was out of the room or it was in the middle of the night and they would come on the intercom and say, hello, can I help you? Oh, <laughs> right. Not helpful. That, that might just be like a late night nurse messing with you or something. <laughs> you know, so I, they would hang up and I would press the button again. Yeah. And then ultimately somebody would come and actually check on me. They would finally <laughs> check on you as you smash that cast against your bedside, exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> you had to make enough racket for them to realize you couldn't actually respond. But still, you know, um, I think, again, I, I think it's awesome that you can laugh at that Um and find some humor in it. And I think, I don't know, sometimes that's like shifting the, like a mind shift, right? Where you could just be like getting pissed and angry at, at a nurse and what are you thinking? Or even somebody who tries to send you a gift that's super kind, but you can't eat, you're on a ventilator, right? And you could experience and see the humor in that. And um, some people may be in a perspective of, you know, how unthoughtful, how ungrateful and, and I think your humor and sense of humor, again, I just think it, it probably really helped you along the way. And I'm sure it still does. And I think that's it awesome. 
It, it does. And, and my parents were so funny. My 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 mother is, is very small, very petite, and she loves bright, loud colors. And she wears neon orange and lime green. And, you know, I'm a I'm a corporate lawyer. I'm a little more conservative. Right, right. I, uh, you know, and, and I, I lost so much weight and I, I couldn't do anything for myself. And, and, you know, the humiliation at the time I'm 46, 47, and, and having your mother shave your armpits and dress you and put on your underwear. But, you know, she went out when I, when I moved to the rehab hospital and I was, I was able to wear clothes and not just a hospital gown. She went out to the store and she brought all these bright orange, yellow clothes <laughs> for me. And I remember saying, Mom, they had no beige. And she's like, nope, no beige. <laughs> And, and my friend sent this huge gift basket to the rehab hospital and had all these wonderful, thoughtful things in it and a box of condoms. I'm like, really? <laughs> I have a crushed pelvis. Thank you very much. Right. <laughs> it was a joke, you know, but it, but we laughed. Yeah. We're like, okay, never was there a more useless gift. <laughs> that is awesome. That is funny. Well, you know, I want to touch on a couple more pieces quickly here. Um, one is I know this tragedy actually changed the trajectory of what you're doing work-wise, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. I know you made a shift from working with Merck in a pretty high-level position into um, working on a break-off company called Orga Organon. Um, so I'd love to hear about that. And then, of course, your book, which I know you've referenced a little bit, but I'd love to hear more about that. It's your memoir of trauma and healing, and the title is Bone by Bone. Thank you. Yeah, you know, it was uh, two years and three or four months after the accident uh, when I was ready and I felt like I had the stamina to, to, to be productive and I wanted to go back to work and I I'm so grateful. You know, companies have a culture and I think they also have a character. And I am so grateful for the support. I'd been out over two years and the company welcomed me back into a position as a senior vice president and, you know, helped me reestablish my career, my professional life. And a lot of companies might not have done that. And so I am very grateful for the people that supported me. And and the, the beginning was rocky. You know, a, a lot of women and, and men too, especially during COVID, have transitioned careers or been forced out of the workforce or, or taken time off for their family. And it is hard to go back. Uh, and, and I was still weaker than I realized. And so in the early days, I would be in a meeting and I would just feel this overwhelming, irresistible desire to sleep come over me. And so I would pick up my cell phone and, and pretend that I'd just gotten a very important call and kind of apologize to the people in the meeting and step out. And I'd go to my office and I literally laid down under my desk and I would set the alarm for 20 minutes and I would take a nap on the floor. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. The, 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 the phone would go off. I would sit back up. I would shake it off and I'd go back to the meeting pretending I had just finished my right. Finally, I had to come clean. I was afraid somebody was going to walk into my office and, you know, think I'd killed over. You <laughs> right. know? See the legs sticking out. Oh, and my I goodness. Said, well, yeah. I, I don't need a lot of official accommodations, but sometimes I need to take a nap. Right. Sometimes the pain or the, and, and, you know, they put a couch in my office and, and, and we would joke about it. People would walk into my office and they're like, 
man, you got a couch. And I'd say, yeah, it's great. You get hit by a train, you get a couch. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You know, but, but, but gradually I did get stronger. I went back to full time. I, you know, there were some setbacks like with the unexpected surgery I mentioned, yeah. but you know, I, 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 I regained confidence in myself that I could do this and, and hopefully in those around me that I was able to do this. And when the opportunity came up to, you know, it didn't feel disloyal in any way. This this was a, a, a spinoff that Merck was doing for corporate reasons so that a new company could really focus on these products around women's health. And that mission just really spoke to me. And and I, I I went into the CEO and I said, you know, if if you guys agree, I'd really like to be a part of it. And it's been so fun to start something new. And we're not a tiny little company. We're S&P 500. We went public on the New York Stock Exchange. I got to help ring the opening bell uh, a little over a year ago. And it was so meaningful to me. It was such a wonderful experience to get to be there on the platform of the New York Stock Exchange, ringing the opening bell. But it also, you know, there was this moment of saying, I'm back, right. you know, I'm back and I'm here and I so appreciate doing this. So it's, it's, it's been a journey back uh, in my career, but I am absolutely thrilled and it's important to me that I, that I do this. Um, and in the meantime, uh, I also worked on a book. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. You know, I started out when I was, you know, on on full time disability, and and just just jotting things down. I I just felt like there there was so much kindness shown to me, and and stories that happened, and things people said that I wanted to capture and remember, and and ultimately that. You know, my notes started getting longer and, and people encouraged me. And it was actually the CEO of, of Merck. And I was there on a visit and I was speaking with him and he said to me, you know, you have to write a book. And I said, oh, I, you know, I don't want to seem self-congratulatory. It's, it's not like I, you know, and he said, no, 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 no. And he said, Geraldine, you have a story to tell and it can help other people. And, and he even quoted scripture to me, he said, I know you believe, and the Bible says, don't hide your light under a bushel, you know, let it shine for others. And he helped me to think about writing, not to pat myself on the back, and I'm donating absolutely any dime that comes in from the book to the American Trauma Society and other nonprofit organizations that support trauma survivors or trauma medicine. But I, I, I did it as a way to, to try to salvage something good out of this, because otherwise it's, it, it's just a disaster, you know, that, that, that took too many lives. And so people ask me, you know, oh, was writing the book cathartic? And I said, no, it was awful. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Reliving in gory detail over and over some of the worst moments of your life and trying to describe it just right. Yeah. <laughs> and I published a book before I had no idea the process for finding an agent and and finding a publisher and putting together a marketing proposal goodness gracious I I just wanted to tell my story but it's been a real journey and it's been gratifying to me to have done it 
so I'm I, I'm proud of it, and I hope it I hope it helps folks. And it's one of the reasons I appreciate being here because I I, I tell myself the book can't help anybody if they don't know about it. Right, absolutely. So the book is called Bone by Bone, and it's truly a memoir of your your tragedy and and really kind of walks people through your healing process. It is. I I've tried to make it a resource as well. Uh, I read a tremendous number of books around trauma, around survivors, stories, around things that other people have said helped them. So there's a fair amount of research around pain, around opioid prescribing, around the the, the physical impacts and, and the neurological impacts of trauma. But it's told through the lens of, of my own story and my own experience. And I don't think my experience is, is, you know, everybody's experience is unique, but I do believe that we can learn from each other. And so that was my intention. And the title is an illusion. It's, it's um, obviously a reference to maybe the gradual process of healing bone by bone. But there's a poem by Emily Dickinson called there is a pain so utter, it swallows substance up. And it talks about how your memory is protective. And, and it really describes that dissociation, that disconnectedness that protects you for a while. And the last line of the poem is, you know, and, and, and then you can go safely as, as one within a swoon where an open eye would drop you bone by bone. And I just thought that that the disconnectedness that is such a hallmark of trauma is part of where I got the title bone by bone. Right. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, anything else that you want to share about the book? You know, just that I love feedback. Um, I've, I've got a website, GeraldineRitter.com. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, there's a website for the book, uh, BoneByBoneBook.com. Awesome. And I just welcome feedback. I, you know, uh, constructive, positive, all kinds. Um, happy to engage with folks. Uh, I'm working on a uh, discussion guide. I've had a couple of requests from uh, book clubs and book groups. And, oh, awesome. you know, I really believe we all have stories to share. So I welcome hearing others as well. Um, yeah. And you have your own uh, personal website as well, don't you? Yes. GeraldineRitter.com. And it, it links to the book. It links to some interviews I've given. And uh, certainly the book is available on, on all the usual sites, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or you can buy it direct off the website, whatever is easier for folks. There's also an audio version. Um, I've heard folks say they they prefer to listen to books. And it's interesting. My publisher asked me, well, do you want to read it or do you want to have an actor? And I said, well, goodness gracious, leave it to the professionals, you know? <laughs> and they said, well, okay, you know, but, but, but sometimes audiences appreciate the authenticity. And I said, you know what? It would really bother me to hear, it, this is my story. And, you know, <laughs> I don't, I'm not a professional actress, but I'm going to read it. <laughs> awesome. Oh, that's fantastic. So for better or worse, it's out there in audio form as well. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. And it sounded like you'd be okay if people reach out to you. And what would be the best way for folks to reach out to you? Um, 
through the website, okay. uh, either either com or bonebybonebook.com. There's there's a way for for people to to connect. I, I awesome. can't promise to be the the most speedy responder just because life gets busy for all of us. Yeah. Um, but I really do care about engaging, um, especially with the trauma community, with survivors and caregivers because it's exactly why I'm doing this. Yeah, that's awesome. So the, the question I will wrap up with is one that I ask all guests. If there's somebody out there struggling right now who's listening to this show and maybe dealing with PTSD or dealing with symptoms that they don't even understand, what would be your, your biggest piece of advice for them? My biggest piece of advice is to recognize that where you are now is not the end. It's not the end of the story, and it may not be where you want to be, and it may not happen on the time frame you want it to happen on, and, it, and, and your recovery might not look like what you think it's going to be, but there is a next day. There is a next step, and my message is one of hope and optimism and resilience and the fact that it will get better. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. Well, Gerilyn, I want to I want to thank you first of all for sharing your story. As you said, you know, just from my podcast, I'm a huge believer in the power of sharing stories. I thank you for sharing your story on my show. I, I thank you even just for sharing your story elsewhere and your book that you've written. And I I am certain it is helping people and saving lives. Even I don't think would be an exaggeration. And uh, I really want to thank you for taking the time to be on The Depression Files. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. All right. Well, make sure you stay healthy. You too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the U.S., you can text 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression or any other mental illness and would like to be interviewed for the show, or if you'd simply like to suggest a topic, please reach out to me on Twitter at allevin18 or email me at thedepressionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files. 